This podcast is brought to you by GymPass, the UK's leading corporate fitness programme. GymPass multiplies the number of physically active employees at each company, building a healthier, happier and more engaged workforce. UK employees receive access to over 2,000 fitness facilities, with a choice of more than 300 different sports and activities. Visit gympass.com forward slash UK to see how we can help your company build an active, happy and healthy workforce. GymPass, helping to defeat inactivity. Hello and welcome back to People Management's That HR Podcast. I'm Francis Churchill. And I'm Maggie Baska. It's the beginning of a new year, but does that mean a new you? It's traditionally the time of the year for many people to ditch the booze and chocolate and hit the gym in a bid to get healthy. And employers in HR may also well be tempted to take the opportunity to support staff in getting fighting fit for 2020. So what a better time to take a closer look at organizational well-being and ask if HR teams have managed to get beyond token gestures like fruit baskets yet. Offering guidance on how employers can do this will be Jordan Flast, director and fitness ringleader of Drag Diva Fit, and Maggie and my personal torturer for an hour one Sunday. Stephen Bevan, head of HR research development for the Institute of Employment Studies, and Dr. Caroline Marlowe, Director of LM Consulting. And how would you know if someone was lying to you at work? We speak to Ian Mason, a nonverbal behavior consultant and expert in deception at work, to find out how people professionals can become the Sherlock Holmes of their organizations. Plus, Tim Pointer is back to help another listener in Tim's Pointers. All that and more in this episode of That HR Podcast. Your face looks like I'm going to eat you. Don't worry, I've already eaten. I've had five guys already. Not the burger place, actual five guys. Woo! Work it. Woo, look at your biceps, girl. I can tell you get busy late at night. I mean, you go to the gym, you've got such a dirty mind. The range of exercise classes available seems to grow more diverse and wacky. And employers are getting into the act too. Lush and Benefit Cosmetics have previously invested in hula hoop exercise classes, while Unilad and UCL have both enjoyed disco yoga sessions. But do these risk being a pure gimmick rather than being a genuine enhancement to staff well-being? As you've just heard, we decided to find out for ourselves by heading to join one of London's more unique and fun fitness offerings, Drag Diva Fit, an intense cardio class inspired by and run by drag queens. We put this question to Jordan Flask, director and fitness ringleader of Drag Diva Fit. We asked him how employers can encourage more employees to switch off from work and why HR should support more people to exercise during the workday.
And to carry on the debate, we're joined in the studio by Dr. Carolyn Marlowe, director of L&M Consulting. She works with businesses to create an organizational culture of positive well-being, both physically and mentally. So, Carolyn, is there a place for quirky well-being offerings in the workplace, like uh, employers laying on puppy yoga or, I don't know, even uh, doing yoga to 1980s music? It's an interesting question because obviously you need to, um, the main thing you need to do is to get people to want to do it. Mm. Um, therefore, the more quirky you go, you're requiring a very quirky staff to kind of get into the <laughs> idea of it. Um, I think generally, whatever you're looking to do, you need to accept that some people will be into it, mm. some people won't think either way, and some people will be against it. And you've got to work out the balance of those three. And if you're really determined to go with something, you need to work out how you can get around those who aren't interested and all those who are dead against it. And I guess many employers actually do offer that wide range of wellness benefits from discounted gym memberships to private health care. But it can be really difficult, like you said, to get staff to make use of any of these. So how can employers realistically do that? I mean, from my perspective, and it is just my perspective, I mean, I think the use of the word benefits is interesting. Mm. Um, benefits are obviously something which is over and above your job. And it's very nice of employees to put, employers sorry, to put these things on for their employees. However, um, particularly in the health region, we know that people have spent most of their lives developing their position with health. Mm. And therefore, to overcome that is, can be quite a concern, quite an issue. Um, so, for example, obviously we're in New Year's resolution time at the moment, and we know that the vast majority of people's New Year's resolutions probably would have finished by now, two weeks into the I, year. I think today actually is National Give Up on Your Resolution Day. <laughs> so there you go, <laughs> very topical. <laughs> so, um, so you've got a lot to overcome if you want to get your employees healthy. So yes, some benefits are probably more effective than others, um, but it's really a case of, of knowing your staff mm. um, and what is likely to go. And I think these, these long-term um, habits will very much affect people's perceptions of the things that you offer. Mm -hmm. um, they may have experiences on the past which may put them off. Um, they may have experiences in the future, sorry, in the past, which means they really want to do it. But then, of course, you've got the whole work context as well. Is it's happening in the workplace? Do people want to learn about health behaviours? Do they want to talk about things which are quite personal in front of their colleagues? Do they want to do yoga next to their boss? <laughs> All these kind of things. So I think our health behaviours are often quite ingrained. Mm. And to change those, we have to have a regular understanding of of our employees and to find out what they feel capable of doing um, in terms of so to give you an example, I guess, I mean, my initial background was in, in exercise. So I suppose mm. I'd probably know more about trying to change people's behaviour in that particular health region. But we need to know what people feel they're capable of doing. It's not just capable of physically. Um, people have very set ideas of what they think they can capably do and what they can't capably do. But also kind of the... Um, the kind of psychological aspect of it as well so do they feel that they have got the skills to be able to walk through that door to mm. go to the gym mm. do they feel that they um they are organized enough to to pack the bag before work and all those kind of things so there's lots of factors which can affect someone's capability um, in terms of then their motivation um, they will have perceptions of what's being offered mm. so um if, for example if it was yoga it may be that a high percentage of your, your men say no, sorry to be very stereotypical, but likewise you'll have a lot of high percentage of your women who likewise might think no as well. Mm. Um, so people have different perceptions of different activities. 
and that will obviously ex affect what they expect to get out of it. And people always want to invest their times in the things that they think they'll get out of it and that it will be worthwhile for them. Um, and in the work environment, that can often be difficult, particularly if they've got quite a lot going on in their job. Mm. They might also be aware of the implications for others. So from a social perspective, they might think, well, hang on, if I leave the office to go to an exercise class, will my boss scowl at me when I come back? Mm. Am I letting down my colleagues who are looking very busy right now? So all these kind of factors can kind of come into people's thinking when they're making the decision whether or not to go to the yoga class or the mm. exercise class or whatever. Mm. And, and you mentioned about really building that long-term effect in terms of resolution or committing to something like fitness, but how can HR and employers really support employees determined to better themselves in the new year? And crucially, how can they make sure that it isn't just that new year fad that they give up on and then it quickly falls to the wayside like so many resolutions? <laughs> Yes, and I, it's very difficult for employees because at the end of the day, depending on the number of employees they have, but it is quite an individual thing. Um, as I said, people have spent many years sometimes trying to forming these habits and trying to break them and not enabling them to do so. So it's very difficult for employers to do that. I think probably coming into my kind of more um, my area in terms of what we do as a company, we look trying to change cultures. So we kind of look to um, to bring a culture of well-being into organisations. So one of the parts of that is looking what you can do to help people um, preserve or increase their own personal resources. So it might be that if you're looking to support them, you're thinking, okay, so what are the practices that we do within our, our workplace which prevents people from living the healthy lifestyles that they want to do? Mm. And some of that might just be how much energy do they have mm. at certain points of the time. And if they've got a very intense um, workload, well, then they may not physically have the time and the energy at the end of the day to go to the gym or what have you. Um, likewise, it may be things, as I said, about the the social circumstances in the office so let's have some open discussions let's find mm. out you know what is everyone's perception of somebody going off to exercise go for a run or something at lunchtime what's the boss's um, perception of it is the boss role modeling an active healthy yeah. lifestyle are the discussions in the afternoon oh my goodness you seem a lot brighter what did you do at lunchtime oh you had a break yeah it really shows yeah. so, so, so these kind of things i kind of really think about those day-to-day -day, second by second almost exactly. moments in the office which can kind of put up real barriers or alternatively turn around and say well actually maybe i do have permission to go and, and do mm. this mm. And I guess, is there an organizational element to all of this? Like, do employers need to be careful not to offer loads of benefits that staff don't have the time to make most of just because their job is too stressful and they can't get away from their desk, as you've kind of pointed out, where people just feel like they need to be busy? I love that expression, people feel they need to be busy. I think sometimes you can create a culture where that, <laughs> is, that is the case. Yeah. I know that I've done in the past and I've been employed. I've uh, wanted to look busy. I want to look like I was doing everything right. And I think I can work myself into the ground from that perspective. Um, I, I actually would take a, a totally different viewpoint on it. Um, if we're looking at health and, and well-being, we need to consider things from a physical, uh, psychological and a, a social perspective. Now, obviously, I'm a psychologist and I tend to consider things from a psychological well-being mm. angle. Um, and very, if you look at the research of what creates well-being in the workplace, it's actually high quality jobs mm. and not always extra benefits. Now, that's not to say that these benefits aren't appreciated. It doesn't mean that some of them yeah. don't just great things. But if you're looking at bringing well-being across a workforce 
of whatever um, size that might be, whatever nature it might be, the thing to do is to embed practices throughout your organisation which enables everybody to have a high quality job. So research supports that, organisations like the HSC, ACAS, the CIPD, they all talk about creating high quality jobs and the well-being that you can gain from that. Mm. So if I talk about a high quality job, I'm talking about things like um, people having a supportive manager, they're doing jobs that they find meaningful, they're very clear what their roles are, doing something which they believe to be worthwhile. Yeah. So there's lots of aspects which are kind of involved in that. As much as exercise is great, if the job isn't really designed to allow you to have any physical activity, how useful is the de-stress of exercise mm. if you're just going to get it everywhere else? Exactly. I mean, there's this kind of always kind of this kind of thought of, you know, well, it's all very well helping people to go away and have that re- relief, teaching people mindfulness and all those kind of things. Those are all brilliant. But if people then come back to the melting pot at half past one of an afternoon, they're probably back in their stressful place again by mm. the time they kind of come out of the door. Mm-hmm. So it really is about kind of thinking what can we do in the workplace to kind of help people with that. So I kind of, to me, this is something which is really within the organisation's control because it's everything they're already doing, but doing it differently. So in a sense, they're not necessarily even getting an extra cost from it. But we know that the more the organisations go through um, looking at all their systems, looking at the messages they send down through organisations, looking at how they're treating their staff on a day-to-day basis, we know that the more they invest in those things, the higher return they will get Mm. in terms of well-being within their staff. And then also, of course, you know, we know that there's performance benefits of that mm. as well, um, as well as benefits for the individual and their private lives and for broader society as well. I also pose this question of the effectiveness of workplace perks like free fruit and discounted gym memberships to Stephen Bevan, head of HR research development for the Institute of Employment Studies at the IES annual conference, which this year, coincidentally, focused on health and well-being in the workplace. He believes such benefits had a time and place, but could only get employers so far in a competitive labor market.
Businesses can be highly competitive environments, and unfortunately, this can lead to people using dishonest means to get ahead, whether it's stretching the truth on their CV or even committing fraud. So how can HR tell who's lying and who's telling the truth? Research has shown the analysis of nonverbal behavior like facial expressions, tone of voice, eye contact or lack thereof, and body language could be valuable in evaluating if someone is telling the truth. So we're joined by Ian Mason, a nonverbal behavior consultant specializing in deception in the workplace, to discuss how HR can use these cues to understand and spot deception in the workplace. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. So TV shows like Lie to Me and Sherlock have really popularized the idea that people can analyze others and automatically tell if someone is lying to them. But is this actually how it works? And realistically, how could this technique of analyzing behavior benefit HR professionals? First of all, that um, programs like Lie to Me, very, very good. A lot of it is very accurate, but obviously Mm. it has poetic license because it's a TV program. But it is based on actual science. How it can help HR? Good question, actually. If I'll give an example. It's probably the best way. If you have... A person that goes to HR and says, that person has been inappropriate towards me. Which one do you actually believe is telling the truth? It's very hard to spot because if you think words is only 7% of our communication, the other 93% is made up of our tone of voice and our actual body language. So if you take that scenario, it is really a toss of the coin of who is telling the truth. It could be that one person is trying to get the other person into trouble or it did really happen. So using the techniques and nonverbal behaviour can actually look and see, I can see that when I ask an awkward question, that that person's body language changes from the baseline they normally have, which means then, why does that question make them uncomfortable? Then it's much easier to actually say, listen, that person could be being deceptive on that question. So in theory, that's how it works. Um, what does this look like in real life? So. For example, if you're going to interview both Maggie and myself for a job interview and you wanted to know who was the best candidate, you know, how would you tell if one of us were lying or stretching the truth even during the interview? There are, there is several signs. Well, there's quite a lot of signs of actually someone is being, just take the word lying out and use deception. Because what you're doing, if you're going in for a job interview and you've been deceptive on your CV, which actually they say one third of people actually are, and two-thirds of people actually inflate their CV. Which person is the right one for the job? It's asking a series of questions that actually get what's called a baseline. So your normal body language, your body behaviour is when... So I can watch what you're doing and see all your facial movements, your hand movements, your leg movements, the way you construct your sentences, your tone of voice. So when it comes to, say, you took a company from £1 million to £10 million... And I asked you the question, tell me how you did that. And all of a sudden you're, um, well, what I did was... Now, straight away, to me, that would be a red flag. Mm. Because the way you've been speaking to me before, the sentence has been very well constructed. There's been no ums, ahs, or anything like that. So why automatically would that then... That would give me a red flag. Then I know which path to investigate. Same as if I was interviewing Maggie, the same question, and she just flew it off. I know more like that's the truth because it's her normal behaviour. She's not under pressure. So that's how you see it. But there are... There is so many. There is 10,000 facial expressions. 
there is self-soothing there is hand movements leg movements feet movements it's a it's a real science it's not something you sort of go oh yeah that person's lying mm. looking up to the left looking up to the right is that true or false no it's it I, well that's the yeah. question is it true or false looking up to left or right does that mean somebody's lying i'm asking a good uh, question to I ask i don't think so that sounds well, like it's a myth well it, it actually it, it is myth but for most people, if you look on television, people are saying, oh, if someone looks up to the left or the right, they're lying. It's not true. Because actually what you're doing is constructing a memory. Mm. If someone asks you a question, you're visually constructing a memory of what actually happened. But if you're looking up to the left, you could be a left, you could um, be a left-handed person or a right-handed person, and it follows that. So look, you'd be looking up to the right if you're a right-handed person or left if you're left. So it's not true science. No. So what sort of tells? Because obviously, if I started umming and ahhing, he could that, just be nervous. Obvious. Well, <laughs> but are there, are there what are the more subtle clues? Like beyond, say, I was a particularly good, not liar, but deceiver. Well, the, body, the body doesn't lie. Words lie. The body doesn't. There's two things that happen. This part of our brain, the neocortex, analyzes all our information, so it takes in the truth. So it knows what the truth is. Then, if you're going to lie, it then has to look at the lie and actually absorb that lie when it goes then it will look at when you're telling the lie does the person you're talking to believe the lie so there's two parts of the brain so the neocortex analyzes what we're actually saying and what the truth is it also will take in what we're actually trying to lie about we'll also see are we convincing in our lie and what we're telling the person do they believe it but the limpic part of the brain is the one that controls their body language they don't talk so the body language only sees one way, which is the truth. So if there's a situation where you're lying, your body will give you what's called, what's called leakage. Mm. So That's if I ask term. you a, a simple question, for men particularly, or for ladies, if it's an uncomfortable question, you've ever heard of something called ventilation. Men will do this. You will notice it all the time now that you'll just do that with your shirt. Oh, so you'll pull it away you'll from your body away. as if to when, get some yes. kind of ventilation, as if you're overheating. Yes, when you're overheating, you... When you lie or being deceptive, you, your body does overheat. So like so, in cartoons where they pull your collar and yeah. they go, oh, oh. And, and females touch the super sternal notch or play with jewellery. That's what's called a self-soothing symbol to me. Mm. So I could read, why is that question Why is that question made that person uncomfortable? Mm. And that's what you as human resources people need to go down that path. So if you take a good, a good question earlier, what about um, CVs? If you leave a company, you're guaranteed of a good reference. It happens. I've seen it all the time. So when you're going for another job, they only see what's on your CV, which if you want to get a job, people can be deceptive. I'm not going to say everybody is, but people can be. So you've got to get the right person for the job for your company. Having nonverbal behavioral knowledge is a great asset to have it's another tool in the toolkit for you to make informed decisions to make your company get the right people for the job so we've been having effectively this baseline conversation like you've been saying where you have to have just normal conversation gauge how someone reacts what is their normal body behavior now yeah. could you realistically know if francis or i were deceiving you if you asked us a question um yeah probably yeah you want to ask us a question <laughs> do you like your manager yes you do? Yeah, because it's him. <laughs> I can't say no. Okay. Yeah, I'll tell the truth. There's, no, there's nothing there. That's good to know. <laughs> there's nothing there in your body language that tells me 
indifferent. Mm. Now, interesting, when we started this conversation, I started with, that's a good question. The reason why I put that in is I wanted to realise is that is actually what's called deflection. It's mm. given me more time. So I'm complimenting you by saying, oh, that's a really good question. But really what it's doing is it's given me more time to make up my answer mm. to the question. It's like when Bill Clinton was, he said, I did not have relationships with that woman. Well, there's three things there. One but pointing then there was the, also that little smile yeah, at the end. Pointing the finger, he was pushing the point away from himself. The other one was, who says I did not have? He said, I didn't. I did not have. No one says that. And also, he was touching his nose quite often. Mm. And when we actually lie, our blood flow slightly increases. And the hairs in our nose actually slightly go up and down. Which causes us to rub our nose, which is another little sign. Now, if we're baselining someone, they do that all the time. They might have an itchy nose. Mm. But they it's, might have psoriasis. It's, it's outside the baseline. Mm. Once you baseline somebody, then you can look if someone's being deceptive. Because if their body language changes... In any scenario, whether it being conflict, management issues, employment, it's all the same. It's, mm. it's, it doesn't matter which way it goes. And will that baseline take into effect stressful situations? Yes, you it Because you go into an interview, you, know, you coach stressful. yourself to yeah. take your time yeah. answering questions. You, know, yeah. you would normally pause and think about the answer you give mm. in a job interview. Mm. Mm. Um, so can you, can you take that into account when yeah. you do what you do? Of course. There's, there's, there's six lines of baselining so you do your normal baseline and you baseline the voice then you baseline with a question that might be an emotive question where someone might be slightly nervous about something that's happened then you go on to actually analyzing you go into the real thing so you will you get a baseline of all of it so hands where's my hands where's his legs actually a little tip for everybody now if you want to do a really good interview interview under a glass table because you can see the whole body moving because <laughs> our feet in fact are the only part of our body that actually tells the truth all the time i was about to say i i know yeah. that a lot of people will have the nervous leg twitch where yeah. they'll just yeah. start to move yeah. their knee as i do yeah. just because yeah. you have restless leg syndrome yeah. or yeah. you're really nervous yeah. but it's it's interviewing is a nervous situation there is no doubt about it but Learning non-verbal is not just about interviews. It's about conflict resolution. It's about um, people's performance. Mm. People, are they happy at work? Are they happy in their job title? And it's understanding that and knowing that when you're speaking to one of your employees, that you are really understanding the truth of what they're saying. Because it's very easy for me to say, oh, yeah, I love my job. It's absolutely fantastic. But you could be really, really unhappy. Now, if you can read a body language, you can see that there's something you can help them with in their career path so it's not just for catching people out it's about everything it's about helping people too and it's, it's good for, for sales people for, for managers how to manage people if you're you know you're one-to-one with somewhere of a managerial conflict where they they're unhappy with their manager they go to hr they can get to the bottom of it by saying actually you're saying that but your body isn't saying that mm. when i'm asking you questions about your manager you're, you're self-serving tell me what's and if you can read that people will come to will gravitate towards actually no they're really really healthy there to help me so it's it's not just about deception it's about actually understanding people's body language in the workplace inquiries into the accuracy of lie detector machines or polygraphs mm. have really raised concerns that the machines are not 100 accurate and even polygraph results have been dropped from series like love island and the jeremy kyle show if there's concern about the fairness of machines and that kind of lie detector 
how accurate and definitive and confident can we be in the accuracy of humans? Good question, that one. Did it again. If you look at human lie detection, it's a yes or no answer. Polygraph does not recognise the difference between guilt and nerves. So someone could be ultra nervous and it will show up on a polygraph as they're guilty. We instantly, as soon as we see a spike, they're guilty. When you understand how we use nonverbal communication and behaviour to actually get to truth, and I'll use it in that respect, it's there is there's so many different variables. There is not one thing to say someone is lying. Mm. It's a cluster of either emotions, facial expressions, body movements, tone of voice change that actually makes sure that someone is being deceptive in some way so you're going to look for the cluster of so if you see a cluster of one thing when you ask the question hesitation in voice then you start going down that path of i saw a red flag there i want to ask some more questions about that and if you see a second red flag a third red flag if you see a cluster of three you'll know you are onto something that someone is being deceptive in some way whether to either get a better job get a better pay packet get a position that they're not qualified for stealing money not liking their boss that's when you know you're on the right path and what nonverbal does is actually takes you down that path to investigate it properly so with using body language techniques nonverbal techniques and, and background checks of people, you really know you're 100%. Well, it would be 100%, but 90% that you're going to get the right person for the job who's honest and actually has achieved what they've done. And it, if you look back at it, it's, all, it's a science. Mm. And the science comes from people like the CIA, the FBI, um, MI5. They're all now researching into this. And there's huge amounts of money going into this type of business because the brain is far more powerful and complex than a polygraph machine. If you know what to look for you'll see it mm. i always use the analogy to people is if you how many yellow cars did you see on the way to work today none but i wonder how many you see on the way home tonight because you just made aware of it mm. so if you see a red flag where someone's just done that before you wouldn't take a blind bit of notice now you would because you see it oh that's not normal behavior so let me investigate that further I think this is really interesting and honestly when when I go back to the office I'm suddenly going to start psychoanalyzing and looking at nonverbal behavior of all of our colleagues and I don't think that I'm going to get nearly as close to know if they're lying to me about whether they like me or not but I feel like I'm going to suddenly start to see their ticks a little bit more thank you so much for joining yeah, I think this, this is amazing been my pleasure thank you very much And now solving your workplace queries as if by magic, not to be confused with H.R.E. Potter. It's Tim Pointer. Yes, laughs. Never confuse laughs with groans, please. <laughs> no, there wasn't. There wasn't an audible groan. I take the laugh. Sorry. <laughs> so, Tim, this month's question is fairly detailed, but I think we're going to be able to get through it. The reader has gone through and said, I've had my current HR position at a nonprofit for almost a year now. My coworker and I have the same manager, and our relationships with him are very different. My colleague and manager don't get along, but towards me, he seems to show favoritism, giving me better projects or praise for jobs like well done. I try to be strictly professional in my interactions and have a good relationship with my coworker, but this dynamic with my manager has resulted in a fairly frequent but awkward situation where 
my manager will confide with me about some work topic that involves my coworker or a project we're both to work on. Later, he'll bring up the subject in a meeting where it becomes obvious he hasn't shared the same background information with my coworker that he has with me. And my manager has also complained to me about my coworker many times, saying he doesn't share the same information with her because she's extremely emotional. He says he trusts me because I handle things more maturely and reasonably. I usually ignore it when he complains about her, but this is becoming a regular thing. Is my manager justified in his decision to share key details with me and not with my coworker, even when it directly involves her work? Do I have to live with the awkwardness of being the reluctant favorite? Or is there a way for me to advocate for more transparency in these issues? And how should I handle this situation in the future? This sounds like the worst dynamic of all time. The first thing I'd like to admire is the craft of the way this is written. It's a very powerful, very powerful email. Mm. And the words are very resonant. That phrase, reluctant favorite, really lands with me as a a, a very, very powerful way of summing the situation up. It made me wonder how the letter would read if it was from the co-worker Mm. and how they would describe the situation. Because I think they would talk about the difficulty of not receiving the information required to do their job. Mm. Because actually from a management situation, if you really want to cause someone to underperform, you cut them off from information. You cut them off from feedback and you cut them off from the ability to collaborate and connect with their colleagues. And very sadly, all three are true in this situation. So it's very poor management because the manager here is actually any pre-existing performance concerns are being accentuated by the way this manager is choosing to behave. And that is only going to increase the disparity and increase the issues. So all the issues here that I'm reading about are very much about the manager's behaviour and their ability to create high performance within their team or other inability to Mm. do so. So to to directly answer uh, the questions, is the manager justified to share key information with one person in their team and not the other? I don't think so. Mm. Because I think that drives underperformance um, and instability and insecurity. Uh, so I think it's very, very poor behaviour. Do I have to live with the aw- awkwardness of being the reluctant fa- um, favourite? These are difficult conversations uh, to get into. It will be about the ability to have a conversation with the manager and that, you know, that old phrase of managing upwards to say, to get the best out of us, we, it, could we have a team meeting? in which we talk through pieces. It sounds as though the way of working at the moment is one-to-one of each of the two co-workers rather than how can we work on this together. So that's I think it's these little changes that could break this down. Getting together as a team to talk about challenges, sharing information and working together on some of the projects it does feel very siloed as though one person's got this mm. and, you know that you've got a and you're not looking at b and you've got b and you're not looking at a is there a way of just breaking down some of these ways of working because directly saying to the manager you're doing this and it's actually accentuating the issue is not going to be possibly the most helpful way forward but there are other little ways i think of seeking to improve it 
And it might be that there's an ability to speak to perhaps a member of the HR team to get a bit of guidance and support mm. because perhaps this, I, I don't know the experience of this manager, but I feel that they need some support. And there's any other ways we can get them to reflect on their behaviour and how they can really get the best out of their team. I guess one of the things that I'm really interested in, it, in the phrase reluctant favourite really did come up and it really did resonate with me as well because sometimes you feel like, I don't want this position of power. It has been thrust upon me, especially when it comes to calling someone out on a behavior. That's a really difficult thing to initiate that conversation to say, you know, this aggression, especially sometimes with microaggressions, it's really difficult to say because of this slight behavior, which in this it's a very overt behavior, but saying that has a trickle on effect. How does someone who may not be the individual who is getting that type of aggression, because they're not the one who the man, well, we don't know, actually, they, the manager could be saying to the coworker, you know, I have a problem with this other person. But in this scenario, saying, you're telling me this, and I'm seeing this dynamic as an outsider in just the relationship between you and my coworker. And sometimes this isn't the most productive of behaviors. How do you have that conversation? And what do we know about how to give feedback? We know the importance of the precision of feedback. So using phrases like extremely emotional. Now, if I say that to you or about you, what the heck are you supposed to do with that? Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, thanks. You know, I, I feel, you know, I feel bad or I feel bad that you've said this to me about my colleague, you know. So you know, feedback is always about being precise in this conversation. This was the action. This was the impact. Let's talk about what could be different next time and working with someone to work it through and never, ever going into bland generalizations about someone being extremely emotional. That's not going to improve anything at all. I go back to this is the importance of good management. This is great coaching if you can have powerful conversations with specific examples and helping someone to think through how they could act differently the next time that challenge comes around. That's how you help someone to improve. Mm. And also, who gets to decide that emotion's a bad thing? I, I love working with emotional people. HR people with emotions <laughs> are the best, which I don't know one HR person who doesn't have emotions. I don't know any person who doesn't have emotions. Like I this, love passion. Yeah. It's like, this is how this is fantastic when we actually ourselves at work and we bring all that energy and creativity and opportunity that comes with emotion. That's mm. a fantastic thing. I would love to be, I love being described as emotional because I think it's a real positive. I would hate to be described as all stoic and closed. You know, it's really dull. Exactly. So I think it's a great great thing to have emotion but as with everything that we bring to work it's how we apply it and how we use mm. all the skills and all you know all of our energies to get the job done and to move the organization forward i don't know about you francis but i am still feeling the effects of drag diva fit and that was one of the more fun workout classes i've ever been a part of and i've never wanted someone to yell at me ever in my entire life. I think it will take me a few weeks to get over it. It was really fun. There was an older guy working between us. I think he was doing twice the work we were. You should age is never a barrier to these it's things. Never a barrier. And that's all that we have from this edition of People Management's That HR Podcast. Thanks to all our guests, Jordan Flast, Stephen Bevan, Dr. Carolyn Marlowe, Ian Mason, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Keep up to date on all things HR and that HR podcast on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to see your comments. 
My name is Francis Churchill. And I'm Maggie Baska. The producer for this episode was Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio. And we will see you next month. Bye! Goodbye. Bye! <laughs>